And we'll pick up where we left off last week with verse 14. If you remember, if you were here last week, we, we ended with that great verse that John says, hey, I'm writing this so you can know that you have eternal life and that you'd believe on Jesus Christ in whom is life. And now he takes that confidence that we have in our relationship with God and he, he takes it a bit further and now focuses on the area of prayer and then into, and a couple of these verses we're going to look at today are really difficult ones, but we'll wade through them and try to make sense out of them. But when you talk about prayer, for most of us, prayer is sort of a mystery in a lot of ways. Um, We know we're supposed to pray, but we struggle with the idea of in what way does our praying make a difference? I mean, God already knows what he's going to do. Even in this passage, he says, if you pray according to his will, you already have what it is that you're asking. Um, For most of us, we look at prayer and turn it into either just a ritual. We have people talk about, well, prayer doesn't change things, but it changes us. And almost as if prayer is just for us, and it's not about what we tend to think it's about, and that is asking God to do stuff. And, and so a lot of people struggle with the concept because we know that God does whatever he wants, and here it talks about praying in his will. And so you think, why should I have to ask God for something if he's going to do his will anyway? And a lot of people struggle with this concept. Now, the Bible teaches some things that are, that are enlightening on this and difficult at the same time. I mean, we're commanded to pray. We know we're supposed to pray. But according to the scriptures, prayer makes a difference. Over in the book of James, James said, you have not because you ask not. And you ask and you don't receive because you're asking wrong. Now, if what James says there is true, then it's clear that there are certain things that God wants to do for us, but he can't do them because we haven't asked for them. He has chosen to use prayer as the means of bringing about what he wants to do. Do I understand all of that, how that works with God's sovereignty? No. If I want to water down certain parts of Scripture, I can come up with a real neat package of what I believe, but I believe everything that the Scripture says and want to take it all as literally as I possibly can. So therefore, I believe that we're commanded to pray, I believe that when we pray, it makes a difference. I believe when we don't pray, it makes a difference. I believe when we pray wrong, it makes a difference. In order to deny that is to deny the Word of God. Now, in terms of the importance of prayer, you don't have to look any further than Jesus himself to realize how much prayer mattered because Jesus had just three years basically to get his message out there. He didn't go into the ministry till he was 30. And yet, he repeatedly would leave a crowd of people who wanted to hear him teach so that he could go off and get along with the Father and pray. Every major occasion in his life was surrounded by prayer. He would go climb a mountain in order to pray, leave a guard so that he could pray, get up early in the morning before everyone else so that he could go pray, stay up late at night after everyone else had gone to bed so that he could pray. Jesus made prayer a priority. Now, Jesus wouldn't do anything that's not necessary. 
And Jesus wasn't praying so that it would change his attitude. He was perfect. He was praying because that's the way God gets things done. Jesus clearly believed in prayer. You go to the rest of the New Testament, look in the book of Acts how important prayer was in the early church. So important that when it described what a pastor is supposed to do, it said, quit getting distracted with all this other stuff. What a pastor does is they spend time studying the word and praying and declaring the word. So basically, the central focus of a pastor, according to the book of Acts, is to pray and to teach. Now, everything else that we do, and there are plenty of things I do other than that, but none of them are important enough to knock those things out. If I cut corners, I cannot cut corners on those things without having dire consequences to, to the ministry. Now, you read Paul's letters, and Paul was constantly praying, telling them what he was praying for telling them to pray, even to really carnal churches, asking them to pray for him, that he would have boldness, that he would have fruitfulness to what he was doing. So clearly he believed in it as well. But you go back all the way to the Old Testament and you realize prayer was a central focus of the Bible from the beginning. This was always something that God ordained as the way that he gets things done by having his people ask for it, and then he is able to respond to it. Even over in Chronicles, it talks about if you want your land to be healed, if you want good things to happen in your life, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. So prayer has always been something that is critical to the life of someone who believes in the Lord. Now, there are some people who teach us that it's critical, but they still have kind of a twisted version or understanding of prayer. A lot of people think that prayer is the way you manipulate God and make Him do what you want to do. But prayer is not about you getting what you want. It's about you getting what God wants aligning your life with him, but asking him to do these things and making them happen. The Bible, again, says you ask and you don't receive because you're asking wrong, wanting to spend it on your lust. So people who are emphasizing positive thinking and positive praying and naming it and claiming it and everything, I'm, I'm actually all for all of that. I think we should be positive people, so I'm not knocking that. But when you turn prayer into something that makes God your messenger boy to do what you want him to do, you have things turned around. Prayer is not your way for you to get what you want. And when you think of it that way, you can get really frustrated. But you can thank God that it's not. Because if prayer meant that whatever it is that you ask, God will do it, independently of his will, then we'd be a mess because basically you and I would be God. We'd be calling the shots. God would just be doing what we want him to do. But prayer is absolutely critical. Prayer makes a difference. 
We should be praying constantly, the Bible says, without ceasing, always having a running conversation with God as we go through our day because it makes that much of a difference. However, it's the way in which God chooses to do His will in our lives. It's not the way that we dictate to God what our will is. So, having said that, let's begin with verse 14 and We'll look at a couple verses and stop and then move on after that. Verse 14 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, or literally toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, and if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. The key word that jumps out here is that word confidence. When we think of confidence, um, we tend to think, well, the English word confidence comes from, well, it comes from a French word, but comes from the Latin words that would, that would mean with faith. And so when we think of confidence, we think of, yes, doing things with faith. But the word that's used here in the Greek, in the New Testament, is a different word than that. It's a it's a word that's used several times in the New Testament, but it's a word that means to, to talk, and it's a word that means like to pour out words, and then the prefix of it is the word pos, which means everything or anything. And, and I think we miss the point if we don't see that that's what he's saying. This is a really important point relative to prayer. What that word means is that you can say anything, that you can say everything. And you might go, well, I mean, wait, what's the point of that? Isn't it about praying in His will? Well, no, because prayer starts with a relationship with the Lord, a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's not someone from far off sending a message in a bottle that hopefully someday God will open it, or it's not like us coming and buttering up Santa Claus, hoping we get what we're asking for for Christmas. Our prayer life centers on understanding that our relationship with God allows us to say anything to Him. Now, any relationship can be measured in terms of an intimacy scale based on how much can you actually say to this person? Because most of our relationships, there are some things that you can say and there are some things that you just better not say. You learn those often by trial and error. But the ideal relationship is a relationship whereby your communication matters so much and there's so much grace in the relationship that you can say absolutely anything without filtering your thoughts, that what comes into your head, you're able to put it into words, someone else hears it, translates it back into thoughts, and then they will deal with it, and you don't have to worry about what you say. If it's in your head, you say it. That's, what, that's the definition, really, of intimacy. And that's the kind of relationship God wants with us. Now, for most of us in our lives, we certainly put a lot of restrictions on what comes out of our mouth. And it's probably a good idea, given the nature of our society. 
I, believe it or not, I don't say everything that comes into my mind when I teach. Now, some people go, man, I'd sure hate to hear what you don't say, because what you say is offensive enough. But, but I recognize. Now, for instance, there are certain words that, and they're just words, but if I use them, it would strongly make a point that I would want to make. But people might find those words to be offensive, and therefore I, I, I choose to use a word with less power attached to it in order to not end up with just one service every Sunday. So, and, and with a desire not to, to hurt people as well. Many years ago when Calvary Chapel first started our high school, we had an interesting year where the entire high school was just a one-room schoolhouse, basically. Freshmen through seniors, brilliant students, learning disabled, physical handicaps, everything, all in one class with like 20, 25 kids. And it was quite an experience. Nobody who participated would ever forget it. But there was in that class a boy who had missed like three years of school because he got run over by a semi-truck. And the tire went right over his head, and so his head was somewhat deformed. He wore a hat to sort of hide that, and it was difficult for him to walk and everything else. Well, that boy, there was a girl in the class who, who named Kim who was like really streetwise and, and cutting-edge, rocker-type little girl. And here they're in the same class together. Well, there was a junior, little junior high kid who made fun of this boy who had the problem with his head and with the hat. And this girl, Kim, stood up for him to this junior high boy and called him a, a name that would be a name, a word that might be appropriate in an anatomy class, but not necessarily in normal conversation. <laughs> and then somebody heard it and ratted her out and came to me and I'm the administrator who's going to oversee this. And I was like, what do I do? Because, I mean, it's just a word. And on the other hand, I'm so proud of this girl for sticking up for this kid. And th this kid who would make fun of somebody like that probably needed to be chewed out. So I was just like, oh, man. And so then I had a conference, and her parents came in with her. And they sat down real nervous and scared and you know, I just, I prayed, and then I said, Kim, your choice of words, though accurate, <laughs> were inappropriate. <laughs> In the future, please try to choose a different word that expresses the same sentiment, and I'm really proud of you for sticking up for your classmate. And the parents were just like choking back laughter, and, you know, but... So often what we do in society <coughs> is we socialize people out of being able to express themselves. And we teach people, and it carries over into even our prayer life and our walks with God. We're so paranoid about words. We're so paranoid about how someone's going to say something that we hold back that ability to even connect with others and to have true intimacy Little kids, you don't have to teach them to say what's on their mind. I mean, they will say it. Because if it comes into their head, it comes out of their mouth. It's, they don't understand what the problem is. <coughs> I mean, I, I've told the story before about my son William. When he was two, we were in Costco, and there was a woman large enough to block a Costco aisle. You can imagine. 
But he goes, Dad, look how fat that lady is. Now, what do you say? I'm embarrassed, <coughs> and I'm, I'm wanting to explain to William, but I can't say, no, she's not, because I couldn't get my cart past her. <laughs> she looked really upset, <coughs> and William's like, and I go, William, you shouldn't say that. He goes, but she is. <laughs> I go, I took him aside, I go, I know she is, but you don't want to hurt somebody's feelings, and you... You know, later on, tell me, wow, did you see how fat she was? Now, in a perfect world, someone who is that, that heavy <coughs> would just go, the kid's right. I think I better do something about that. But what we do is we say, no, that's not acceptable. We pretend like things aren't the way that they are. Now, in another culture, it might be completely different. There are some cultures where if you say, look how fat that lady is, people would go, yep, that's right. Because in some cultures, being larger means you're more wealthy. And so they see it as a status symbol. One of the times when I was over in uh, Thailand with some of the orphanages that we support over there, it was funny because there were a couple guys who went along with us who were um, rather large. And the kids had never seen anyone with a belly like that. And so I won't tell you who they are. But, but the little kids would just come up and go, wow. And then they would reach up and touch their belly. And I was like, I've never seen anything like this before. And then they asked through an interpreter, are they going to have a baby? And some of us enjoyed it more than others. But <coughs> these are culturally determined things whereby we decide some things are appropriate and some things aren't. When you have a really healthy relationship with someone, you should be able to say anything to them and know that they are going to receive it and filter it themselves that you don't have to hold back because they have given you permission. I want to know whatever is on your mind and I want you to say it. But it takes a commitment and it takes the, the willingness to work through things before you can ever come to the point whereby that actually works for you in your life. But the level of your ability to say anything determines the level of the intimacy in your relationship. And so John is here saying, look, you can say anything in prayer with God. Maybe you don't have another person in the world that you can be honest with, but John's going, do not play games with God in your prayer. Don't think that you have to word your prayer just right, and you have to like pretend like you're better than you are, and use flowery language. God knows what's in your head already. He knows every thought you've ever thought. And God will just be happy and refreshed when you actually come out and say it. That's why 1 John chapter 1, he says, the whole key is confessing your sin. If you confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that word confession means to just come on out and say it. Just agree with God. And so here he's saying, your relationship with God should be based on the greatest intimacy that you could ever have with anyone. Because like a dear friend, 
you can say anything and their jaw won't drop, they won't act shocked, they won't cover their ears and cry. God's not sensitive that way. He is not offended by what's in our head or he would have bailed on us a long time ago. He's just going, I'm glad you finally admitted it. I'm glad you said that. Now think about some of the prayers in the Old Testament. The book of Psalms is mostly prayers, and many of them are written by David, the psalmist, the one of whom God said, David is a man after my own heart. And think of what David expressed. Now, David was a poet, and he came up with some beautiful writings. He came up with just some amazing things that he communicated. And some of them we focus on often because they feel like what we think spiritual should feel like. So we go, oh, the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. Makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul and so on in Psalm 23. Or we say, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. He made us, not we ourselves. We're his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. And we go, yeah. That's what prayer sounds like. But sometime read through the Psalms and look at what some of David's prayers sounded like. He wrote a lot of prayers that we will never have the little kids line up on the stage and quote them at Christmas. Can you imagine little kids coming up here and saying, God, you see the wicked, and I pray that you will shatter their teeth within their mouth. Fa la 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 la. You know... Or him saying, may they choke on the vomit of their feasts. Yes. Now because we decide that you have to use special kinds of language with God, but it was in David's expressions of honesty and even doubting and questioning God that God said, I knew you were feeling that way. I'm really glad that you admitted it to me. I'm really glad that you came out and and you showed that you trust me enough, that you'll say what you think. We should never feel the need to say things right with God. Look at Job, a guy who God said was the most righteous man on the earth. Job, because of being tested by Satan, God allowed Satan to take away everything he had and ultimately then remove his health and have him have these miserable boils. He had a wife who was telling him, why don't you just curse God and die so I can get the insurance? He had, he had some friends who were like telling him, you must have done something wrong. You must have offended God. God must hate you. And when he would try to defend himself, they would say, be careful, man. God doesn't like it. You're saying some things that are really bad about God. And Job's like going, I wish God was here right now. I'd tell him a thing or two. If he would stand up like a man, I'll defend myself. And, I'll, and, and Job was just completely torn, struggling with his concept of who is God and why is God allowing this to happen? I don't get this. And yet, God, when God showed up, by the way, Job was like, uh, never mind. <laughs> but, and his presence tends to do that. But God came and didn't have a bad thing to say about Job, who had been questioning God and doubting him and angry with him. Chapter after chapter after chapter, God came and said, Job is right. You idiots who are trying to give counsel, 
You guys who are trying to tell them, oh, no, you shouldn't talk like that about God. When did I ever ask you to stick up for me? He goes, you guys better ask, ask Job to pray for you so that you will be forgiven because he knows me and you don't. Why? Because Job was honest with God. And so here he is saying, when you come to God, come with the idea that I can say anything, anything I want, any way I want to say it, I can pour out whatever is on my heart to God. And this is that confidence, that say allness, say anythingness that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears it. I'm glad this is in there about according to his will. He doesn't tell us just try to figure out what his will is and only ask things that are in his will. God's not offended if we ask something that isn't his will. And he's not going to be swayed and give us something that we want and he doesn't want it, but he's like, fine, if you insist, here, I'll do it. And there are people who are afraid to pray for certain things because they're like, what if it's not God's will? Well, what if it's not God's will? God responds to the prayers that are lined up with his best for us. That's what he does. And I'm glad of that. And yet he's glad when I ask for something stupid too. He doesn't run off and do it. He goes, hey, I'm just glad you're talking to me. It's okay. And my plan, my best for you is going to unfold in your life in a special way because you're honest enough to talk straight to me and I am responding to that which you are asking. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed, Father, if there's any other way, take this away from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And when we come to him, are we really submitting ourselves to his best for us or not? Because that determines whether or not we're really praying in the way that we're supposed to. This isn't just coming to God and saying, okay, God, do whatever you want. Amen. It's coming to God and saying, God, here's what I want. Here's what I'm asking for. Here's what I sense you doing in my life. Now, as you get more comfortable with him, as you read his word, as you talk to him more, you can begin to sense the direction that he wants to lead your prayers. And even the Holy Spirit works inside of us, interceding for us and helping direct our prayers when we don't know how to pray as we should. But the point is, his thing is, you should be able to say anything and pray anything because God is only going to do what's best for you and it's going to be so cool if what you ask him for also turns out to be what's best. If our will lines up with his will as he gives us the desires of our heart. But how does this look like in prayer? It should result in confidence, not in trying to psych God out, afraid that we're asking for the wrong things. Some of the things that I've prayed for the hardest, it turned out God's will was something different than that. But that'll show whether or not you really want to do what's best or whether you want to do what you want. Now, if you want to pray for a new Rolls Royce, go ahead. It's not going to hurt anything. God's not going to go, how dare you pray for a Rolls Royce? Um, if you want to pray for me to have a new Rolls Royce, I don't care. It's not going to hurt anything. If God wanted to give me one, I could sell it and do a lot of good with it. But, but see, we can say anything because 
we know that God listens and responds according to his will. And that's what he's saying. Now, again, there always has to be that bowing to his will. My nephew Johnny, who many of you have been praying for for a long time as he battles cancer, and he, he was able to get here this morning, and he's sitting in the front row. Um, I've been praying for God to heal him. And the doctors keep telling him he's going to die any day now. He just keeps on living and staying very much alive. And I know that he is praying that God will heal his body. And I want that to happen. And I pray it as hard right now as I did the first day when we found out that he was sick. Because that's what I want. But if God chooses to take him to heaven pretty soon, and he is up there with his new body, just dunking behind his back and doing and, and having this awesome time in the presence of God, eternally just having the best day of his life every day. It just keeps getting better. I'm not going to be disappointed. I'll be sad for me and for us because I'll miss him. But if God says, you wanted him to have his body reasonably healthy or to, or to suffer for a longer time, and I had a better plan, I'm not going to second guess that once it happens. In the meantime, I'm going to continue to pray. I'm going to continue to ask God to give him one more day, one more day, one more opportunity, more health, less pain. That's what I'm going to pray because that's what I want. Part of that's selfish. A part of it is for his benefit. But the whole thing is, I don't have to worry about God going, can't you hear what the doctors are saying? It's not looking good. Quit wasting my time praying for me to heal him. Instead, I think God just goes, I'm so glad that you're still asking for that, that you don't get discouraged by what doctors say, that, that you know that I can do this. And I think he's blessed by it. And I think that every day of life that Johnny has is a gift to us and to others as well. So, but at the same time, he's going, but you keep praying and, and submitting to the will of God, but asking, God wants you to do that. He doesn't, God is the one more than anyone else in your life who does not want you to pretend anything. God doesn't want you to fake it. God doesn't want you to act a certain way and be another way. He just wants to know you. And he wants you to be totally open with him. And once you learn to be open with him, you'll find that you can be more open with other people too. It just helps. You talk it through with God and you go, really, he, he still loves me. He responds with his grace. So maybe I can trust others. Maybe I can open up a bit more to them. But he says, if we know that he hears us, and hears doesn't just mean he knows what we say because he hears everything. Um, but hears means to listen to and respond to. We know that whatever we ask, we know that we have that word is echo, which means hold on to. It's in your hand already, the petitions that we have asked of him. We can be certain that what we've prayed for, if it's in his will, if it's best for us, then you've got it. He's answering those prayers. Now, I don't know which things are there and which aren't, but I really don't want God to just do whatever I want. Because I'd be God if that were the case. I want him to do what's best, and I'll put in my two cents worth, but ultimately, everything that he wants for me, 
Everything that's good for me, everything that's best for me, if I ask, I've got it. And what a powerful tool prayer is to be able to go to God and let God filter it. We don't have to. Just like a good friend, they'll listen to anything that you have to say and then they'll go, are you sure about that? I mean, I've heard you other times. I'm not sure I get what, that you're feeling this, but is, you know, I love you no matter what, you know, but, but we'll work through this together. That's what God does. And then he goes, I'm listening to what you're saying, and, I, and it's, it's my heart to want to give you everything that you want, but at the same time, I know some of what you want isn't best for you. So is it okay if I pick and choose and, and give you those things that are best for you that you ask for? And prayer does that. Now we come to this next section, and it's a difficult one, and we don't have a lot of time to spend on it, and I probably could have made it another message, but I have everything all planned out, so it's this whole thing of a sin which leads to death. And in the context, he's talking about prayer, and he says, if anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and God will give him life for those who commit sin, not to death. There is sin that's to death or toward death. I don't say that he should pray about that one. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. So he's saying in a nutshell, there are some people who are sinning toward death. There are other people who are sinning, but it's not ultimately leading to death. And so if you pray for someone who isn't t- toward death, then you can save their life. And there are some people that you just can't save, basically. Now, there are a whole lot of... The, the commentaries just have so many different, different explanations as to what this is. And throughout church history, it's been interpreted by a lot of different people. Honest scholars like... Kenneth Wiest, for instance, a great Greek scholar, after he talks about the different views, he says in his, um, in his book on the New Testament, he says, to be honest with you, I have no idea what this means. <laughs> and he's smarter than you or me. <laughs> but it means something. And so we'll talk about it for a few minutes and then let's just see what the whole point of it is, how this feeds into what, what he's been saying. Now, some people, you have these two categories of sin, those leading to death, those not leading to death. There have been some people throughout church history who have believed that the sins that are leading to death or the sins that are toward death would be sins for which um, the Old Testament would assign capital punishment to them. And other sins are ones that they could have had a sacrifice and it would have been forgiven. Um, But some of those capital sins in the Old Testament were things like murder, but also violating the Sabbath, um, blaspheming, and things like that. So you can kind of eliminate that because we all know people who have been saved after having done those things. The Apostle Paul himself, who called himself the chief of sinners, was someone who had been guilty of murder and forcing people to blaspheme. So there aren't sins a lot worse than that. So I think that explanation is a bit weak. The Roman church divided up sins in what they call venial sins and mortal sins. The same kind of problem emerges. 
Um, how do you pick and choose which sin would go in which category? And this also completely conflicts with 1 John chapter 1, where he says, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. So according to John already, he's made a great point that when Jesus died, he took all of our sins on himself, and any sin is forgivable. Um, Isaiah 53 said that. We've all gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So I would reject any understanding that would say, some sins are forgivable and some aren't. Other people, early teachings were that these are sins that were committed either before or after your baptism. That if you did something before baptism or confirmation, that would be forgiven. But if you did it later, it can't be forgiven. But again, nothing in Scripture would talk about that. Now, some people take this and say, oh, this is like the so-called unpardonable sin or the blasphemy of the Spirit that Jesus talked about over in Matthew and in Mark's Gospel as well. In those passages, some, some Pharisees had come and were accusing Jesus of doing miracles by the power of Satan instead of by the power of God. And he didn't say, you just committed the blasphemy of the Spirit, but he said basically, be careful because you are getting into an area of danger whereby you could do something that you can't take back, that it just won't happen. And so there are some people who are going, once somebody has committed that sin, then don't even bother praying for them. You can't save them. They're unsavable. Um, but, I, but I personally believe that that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to harden your heart so much that you reject Jesus Christ forever. That you're not open, that you're not seeking, that you're not even, that you're just like, there's no way I'm ever going to do that. And to get to where you accuse Jesus of being of Satan is in a dangerous position. But like I say, even then, with everything they knew at that time, it doesn't say that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But some people want to take that in here. They'll bring in Hebrews 6 where it talks about if you have you know, tasted the heavenly gift, the powers of the age to come, and so on, and then you reject Jesus Christ, it's impossible, Hebrews 6, 6, it's impossible to be renewed again to repentance because you've crucified him to shame openly. Now, that's a whole different passage to work our way through. It's one of the more difficult passages in the New Testament. But it's talking about that people can get to the point whereby there's nothing left for them. And I think all of these designate that there are some people who just don't want to be saved. Now, everyone who has ever come and told me that they're afraid that they've, it's impossible for them to repent, they're afraid that they blasphemed the Holy Spirit, they're afraid that they did the unpardonable sin, they didn't do it. If you're sitting there worrying about whether or not you've done that, I can tell you, assuredly, you haven't done it. Because if you have done it, you wouldn't care. The only way you can care is if the Holy Spirit is still speaking to you and convicting you whether you're a Christian or not. And nobody goes to hell wishing they would go to heaven. People who reject Jesus Christ do so by stepping over the body of Jesus Christ and saying, I don't want that. And at some point, apparently, with some people, God just says, okay, have it your way. But, you know, we don't know who those people are. 
and John's not saying who they are, however you interpret this specific stuff, oh, other people would say it's talking about physical death. Um, because there are examples of people, 1 Corinthians 11, talking about communion. There are some people who are sick and even some people who have died because they haven't correctly discerned the Lord's body. So sometimes God may kill someone in order to keep them from going so far that they would walk away from their salvation. Um, Ananias and Sapphira may be an example of that. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They got slain in the Spirit, carried out and buried. And, and so some people would identify this with that. The problem there is, how do you know? Then there are some people who say, what this means is, don't pray for somebody after they've already died because it's too late. Now, all of these have some merit, but they must not be the point because John doesn't explain it. And generally, when you have a text that everyone disagrees on, how important could it really be? Or God would give us some unity on it. But, but in the context and talking about prayer, make sure that you get this point. Prayer can save lives. Prayer can make all the difference in the world if you pray for people who you see sinning. Now, he calls them brothers. Is he talking about just Christians or is he just talking about fellow man? He, John uses the term both ways, so we don't have, uh, that must not be the point. But the point is, if you see someone who's walking in sin, if you pray for them, you might save their life. Now, in order to understand this, and, and I think it's difficult to even figure out, okay, does he mean death in a spiritual sense, death in a physical sense? Does he mean life in a spiritual sense, life in a spiritual sense? He doesn't make that clear. And again, he uses these terms in both ways, even in this book itself. But, you know, remember what sin is, first of all, and that helps the word for sin, the word hamartia, it's a, it's a word that we say means miss the mark, but it comes from, there's a word meros in the Greek that refers to your portion, your share, your destiny, your part of what life is supposed to be is your meros. A pie that's cut up, this is your piece. And then the prefix, the A, means not. So what a sin is as he uses it here and elsewhere, sin is doing something that is less than your life, your portion, that which is best for you. Anything that we do that robs us of God's best, and the scripture teaches that that, that happens when we sin, any of that is hamartia, is sin. So if he is saying, if you see people who are sinning, and a sin, if you see people who aren't living the way that they could be, aren't getting God's best, then pray for them. Now, this isn't like if you hear about somebody or, you know, when we see someone sinning, we have a lot of different reactions. One is to go tell other people about it. Another is to be disgusted by them. Another is to make judgments and draw conclusions about them. Sometimes we think it may be up to us to actually confront them. More likely we call somebody else and say, you ought to do something about this. But how often when we see someone who's hurting themselves, do we stop and pray for them? Now, every sin, in a sense, is leaning toward death. 
Sin is the process by which we are killing ourselves and each other. And that's why in Genesis 3, as soon as sin happened, the first sin, it's, it makes it clear that something infected humanity that made us prone to death. And so in the day you eat thereof, you'll start dying. Now, here he's saying, when you see people who are doing things that are less than God's best, pray for them and you might save their life. Now, when John talks about life, he's not just talking about instead of going to hell, they'll go to heaven, or instead of physical you know, death, they'll actually survive. That's not his primary concern. And as he recorded the teachings of Jesus, often there were things of Jesus saying, I came that you would have life and that more abundantly. John's burden and vision is that each of us as children of God would live the best life possible, would live in accordance with that which is God's ultimate plan for our life. And that's what we pray to that end. And so if we take this and understand it, and again, I, you know, all of the possible interpretations are possible, but what I know is this. What he is saying is prayer has a way of giving people their life back. Prayer has a way of salvaging people who are killing themselves, and yet it turns out it's not unto eventual destruction, that there's hope, there's a future, that you can make a difference. And I don't believe that we should pick and choose and go, you know, you're pretty much walking dead. I'm not going to pray for you. Uh, you, I'll pray for you. I have a little hope maybe you could do. No, God is able to save anyone. He saves to the uttermost, or as one of the or old evangelists used to say, Billy Sunday, he saves to the guttermost. So we don't pick and choose. Now you go, but why does he say not to pray for these people if we're not even sure who they are? Who is leaning into death so much that they're never going to change, that they're never going to repent? Well, just notice this, where he says that in the end of verse 16, he says, there is sin that is toward death. And I do not say that he should pray about that, literally about that guy. Um, the word there for pray is a different word than all of the other words in this passage that refer to prayer. The other words that are translated ask or petition and things like that are words that imply I'm begging you, I'm coming and bowing down to you and I'm just asking for you to do this. But the word that's translated pray here in verse 16 is a word that, that was used to cross-examine people in a courtroom. It's a word that is an equal or someone superior to you telling you, leading you questions, and trying to get you to do something. And so the reason he switched words here and chose this word instead has something to do with what he's saying because he's just going, look, don't just think that you can make somebody come alive. Don't think that you can make somebody go to heaven, that you can make somebody turn their life around, however you want to interpret it. You can't force life on somebody. So don't come to God in violation of this person's will and say, God, would you just mow him over and make him love you? He's going, no, don't pray for that. Don't pray that someone's will will be violated. God doesn't do that. But you pray that they will see the truth understand the good news, 
desire for themselves, maybe go through a hard time so that they'll be reaching out and crying out. But the whole point is pray for people because you can breathe life into their life. And you can't force them. Don't even try. There are some people who are intent on dying. There are some people who are insisting on rejecting Jesus Christ. But, as he says in verse 17, all unrighteousness, or everything that's unjust, is sin, misses the mark. And there is sin not toward death, not leading to death in our translation. So he goes, yes, there are people out there who are just intent on killing themselves. But there are a bunch of people out there who are destroying themselves slowly, but their end is not total destruction. They can be saved. And so focus your attention and invest your prayers in making a difference in people who still are gasping for air and can breathe in that, that just that pure, clean air of life that God wants to give them. So this, this great blanket statement, say whatever you want to say to God, pray to Him, and man, you'll have the answers right in your hands, even when it comes to people who are destroying themselves, even when it comes to people who are sinning. Don't focus on their sin. Focus on their potential life and ask God to have grace on them. And you, your prayer can make the difference between life and death. If that doesn't make you want to pray, I don't know what will ever. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. And for this reminder of the potential dynamite that we have in our lives, this capacity to ask you and have you do things that make a difference for others. And especially the capacity that our prayers have in bringing life to a person who's been moving toward death, who's missing out on all that you have for them, who's living their lives without experiencing your destiny and your portion for them. So Lord, help us to make that kind of difference. And as we drive and see people, as we shop and see people, as we work and see people, as we think of people that we know, as we read the news and see people who are sinning, Lord, may we cry out to you on their behalf. And I pray that in our lives we would leave behind us a trail of life where once there was death. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. If you're here today and you don't have that life, you're going, I don't, you know, I don't feel power, I don't know... Um, I don't feel close to God at all. I don't even know if he cares about me. Jesus died so that you could start over and have a new life. And if you haven't done that, today is the day when you can do that. And there'll be people up here in the front after the service who would love to pray for you. And they'll pray for you for any reason. But especially...